Well, good morning. It's good to see you. I feel like, okay, something just threw me off. This side's stronger. I feel like normally this side is stronger. Okay. All right. Well done, this side. I like this side, too. What a beautiful Palm Sunday it is. My goodness. If you had trouble parking, I apologize. We're working on it. Uh, the idea was not to let anybody come in here because there's been vandalism, but <laughs> they're playing basketball <laughs> and stuff, so I don't know. But uh, man, I'm so glad to be with you um, this morning. And I just want to say on that note, as far as being glad to be with you, and I think most of you, some of you certainly by now know, but Paul Ramsey, I just want to take a second to say what I did on Wednesday night at the prayer meeting, which is that just to celebrate what God's doing in Paul and Lindsay and Tallulah, their sweet little 14-month-old daughter. Uh, man, so Paul is now officially full-time with us um, here at Sojourn Gallery. Yeah, yeah. In case you don't know who Paul is, he was the guy up here on keys a second ago. So he's going to be doing everything. I mean, this is just something that God just did what none of us were looking for it. And then there just wasn't a single voice of dissent among the session, the elders at, and all of Sojourn Houston. And um, it's a huge shift for them, but they've been at Sojourn um, Heights. And they got married there. They met there. Lindsay was on the plant team. Paul's been there for five years, been a church planting resident for two. We'll continue here as a church planting resident, but really work in a lot of pastoral capacities. We'll be leading worship as well some and preaching on a regular basis about once a month or so. And just will be pulling with me um, to serve you guys, uh, to wash your feet and to to love on you and to reach the community and to equip you, really, equip you, equip you the church to reach the community. We don't, we don't do that, the two of us. It's, it's, it's uh, the Holy Spirit working through you, the church. So I could not be more thrilled. I'm Presbyterian, so sometimes I seem kind of stayed. Other times I don't, but uh, I am so excited. If I seem stayed, it's not because I'm not excited that God is doing this and to have you guys. And what we're looking at, there'll be more information at the covenant members meeting at the end of this month, but is about a two-year, I mean, God knows, right? But about a two-year stint where uh, we can do this together. Paul can really help us to build up this ministry and plant, continue to plant well, and then eventually to send them out to the area that they feel like that's sort of contiguous to Galleria, that God might be calling them. So we'll be able to have the benefit in a couple years, God willing, of sending out a church um, with, with Paul serving and Lindsay by his side. So I'm just so excited, so thankful Welcome, you guys. Really, really glad you're here. Yeah, so. Amen. Amen. I'm preaching to you this morning on the text that Nathaniel just read, Palm Sunday, and I'm titling it God on a Donkey. Not the, God, not the king that you're looking for. Okay? God on a Donkey, not the king you're looking for. And that line popped into my head as I meditated on this, on this chapter, on this um, passage this week, and the first thing I thought of as a child of a, okay, I was born in 79, so 70s, 80s, was uh, the, the scene from Star Wars, the original Star Wars, episode four, and not at all consonant with this, with this text at all, but where they, they, they glide in on that little Tatooine desert glider into Moss Eisley's spaceport, and they've got the droids with them, and the, you know, you have the, you have the uh, stormtroopers, the guys in white who've got their guns and they're trying to take that offer. And, and uh, they, they say, Are these, now, what about these droids? And Obi-Wan pulls the, the force move on them and he says, 
these aren't the droids you're looking for, in that great British accent. And the guy, they're weak-minded, right? So they're immediately like, these aren't the droids we're looking for. Move along. So these aren't the droids we're looking for. So I immediately, when I look at this text, as inappropriate as that scene might be, that line, these aren't the droids you're looking for. Um, These people, the Jews, Jesus' people to whom he came, they were looking for a king, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't the kind of king that Jesus came to be. This was not the king that they were looking for. But here in Palm Sunday, it seems like it is. Everything seems to be coming together perfectly, and that's the scene that we're going to dive into today. And I, I just want to say, and we'll, we'll dive into this, but in, in so many ways this resonates with us. So often, if we're honest, Jesus is not the king that we want him to be. He's not the king that we're looking for. Um, but he is the king that we need. He is in every possible way the king that we need. We need. Um, and we try to make him something sometimes that he's not, and that's, that's, that happens here in this event that's, that's a week before the resurrection and days before. It's, sun, it's the Sunday before Easter, and it's days before he goes to the cross. And in our, a lot of our Bibles, it's, this is titled the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry of the king! Well, that shows how that betrays our misunderstanding of this text, that Jesus is not the king we're looking for, because this is anything but a triumphal entry. Um, So first, uh, uh, three points, surprise, surprise, today. The first is the seismic scene, the seismic scene. So Matthew tells us that the city, I think he says it in verse, let's see, sorry, one of the last verses in the text that I can't find right now. He says, the city was in an uproar, okay? And that word that he uses uh, for uproar is the word that we get our word seismic from, associated with earthquakes, okay? And so the city was in an uproar. And Jesus, what has happened is Jesus, days before, has raised Lazarus from the dead in a town that's near Jerusalem. And he's been in Bethany, and Mary has just anointed his feet Um, for burial, and the disciples have protested, and literally probably from there, he comes through another village as he's coming into Jerusalem, and this is during Passover week. So the whole city during Passover week is swollen to double or triple its size. It's busting at the seams. Jews from all over Canaan and elsewhere in the diaspora around the Mediterranean Rim have come into the city. So Robin and I spent four years in Edinburgh, Scotland, and there's there's a festival, there's an art festival there that's citywide, takes over the city for the entire month of August, and it's apparently the biggest art festival in the world. It's called the Fringe. Some of you might have heard of it, some of you might have gone. Locals pretty much try, they, they go, they avail themselves some, but a lot of the locals will just try to leave the city for, for the month, because um, it, it's just so full of people. I mean, the earth descends on Edinburgh, and it literally goes from a, a size of a city about like Austin to about 400,000, 500,000, to at least a million plus. And that's just a taste of what's happening here. Um, and everybody knows about Jesus, and everybody, as he comes into the city from the villages, having gotten this foal of a donkey to ride on into the city as the coming king, is just, it's a ticker tape parade for this victorious king, this Messiah, that what? What's he going to come do? He's going to come throw off the Roman yoke. That The Romans, and we'll get into this, but the Romans... Um, have, in a sense, the Jews under their thumb, 
and the Jews are thinking, this is the king, this is the son of David, he's going to throw off the Roman yoke and give us, um, give us our place back. So this is the scene. So that's the seismic scene, just the city and the uproar and the parade that Jesus is entering into. Um, now let me talk in point two just a little bit about the king that we are looking for, that they were looking for that they were looking for Jesus to be, that they thought Jesus was, that we often look for in life and that we often put on Jesus and say, this is what I need you to be, this is what you are. So the king we're looking for, point two. So first of all, the palm branches. I've always, as a kid, been like, I mean, like Nathaniel said, we all grew up, if you grew up in church at all, and you might not have, um, Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, somehow you've got kids with palm branches running around, you know, and... And next year, hopefully, we'll have a little parade where we'll have the kids run in with the palm branches. That'll be great. But that's what the people were doing. They were laying down their cloaks. They were cutting branches off of trees and throwing them on the road for Jesus to walk over. So what the heck is... I never really heard that explained. And maybe I did, but I was a kid and it passed right over my head. But a couple things. One for now. This, probably most preeminently in the Jewish mind, recalls... It's a nationalistic gesture. It recalls the Maccabean Revolt, which was about almost exactly 200 years previous to this, two centuries previous, uh, 160 B.C. or so. And uh, it recalls Judas Maccabees and his brothers taking up arms and throwing off the then Greek, the then Greek yoke that they had, that, that Greece had over, they had hegemony over the entire Mediterranean rim and east to Persia through Alexander the Great. And they had control over over the Jews. The Jews were paying obeisance to the Greeks. And so, uh, and they were doing all sorts of things to the Jews that were sacrilegious and that the Jews had just had enough. And so they finally went up into the mountains, formed a, formed a garrison and a militia, and through the Maccabees, threw off the Greek yoke and had political freedom for quite a while, actually. And so one of the, that, one of the things that happened was palm branches um, were, were sort of a, a, a symbol. The waving and the throwing down of palm branches was a symbol of that revolt. And so the people in doing this are reinforcing their idea of Jesus as Messiah. You're going to throw off the now Roman yoke just like Judas Maccabees threw off the Greek yoke. You're going to take uh, power by force of arms like any king would. Jesus is he's hailed right here and elsewhere as the son of David. Um, Hosanna, son of David, is what they cry to him. Um, he, he accepts this praise. He doesn't say, shh, 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 no, no, no. He accepts this praise. What was David? I mean, Jesus, the Messiah, was going to come from David, but David was a, a military king. In fact, he had shed so much blood that, that God said, I don't want you to be the one to build my temple, the place where I will reside, because you're a man of blood. You're a man of war. Your son, Solomon, will be the one to build the temple. And so Jesus, I mean, Jesus, David, he, he was a man of war, and he fought holy war in the name of God, and he cleared out um, all of the surrounding pagan peoples in Canaan that were near where he set up his, uh, his throne, his empire, in, in the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And so, you know, as a son of David, again, the people are thinking, Judas Maccabees type king, son of David, Messiah, he's going to come and he's just going to kill off all the people that are literally causing us pain. I mean, think about this in your life. Like maybe that stuff's far away, but the people that are making our lives really uncomfortable, infringing on our rights, causing pain to us inside and out. So Jesus is going to take care of that. That's the kind of king that we look to. If you go farther back still in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, you look at Moses, 
And in, in the law, at the end of the, the, the Torah, in Deuteronomy 18, Moses says this. He says, one like me will come, but greater. He'll be like me. He'll come from one of you. He'll be a Jew. He'll come from one of the tribes. Look for him. And look, think about this. How did Mo- So every Jew knew Messiah is going to be like Moses, but, but greater. What, what was so great about Moses? What was the greatest salvation event in the Old Testament? It was the exodus from Egypt. It was Moses leading the Hebrew, what, slaves out of the iron furnace, out of slavery into freedom to be a people who had their own system of laws, their own government, their own land, where they could plant crops and have homes and enjoy freedom. And so Messiah, if he's going to be like Moses, he's going to lead us into that kind of freedom, uh, physical and political prosperity. Closer to home in this very text, um, Matthew applies to Jesus and to this whole event, Zechariah 9.9. So if you look at Matthew 21.5, he says, Matthew says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So that, that text in Zechariah 9.9, its immediate concern, or context rather, is a mounted king, the messianic king, coming into Israel and he's vanquishing like David did, like Judas Maccabees did. He's vanquishing, but in an even greater way, all the surrounding enemies of God's people. And again, closer to home, the Jews sit in a situation where they're not under the Egyptian yoke, they're not under the Greek yoke, they're under the yoke of a power that the world has never seen before. The Roman military power uh, was known for its ferocity, for its um, order and its rigor, and they had their thumbs on Israel. And Israel just knows that if Jesus is that guy, he's going to toss off all that stuff. And then this cry, lastly, in, for this point, the king that we're looking for, um, this cry, Hosanna. Does anyone know what Hosanna means? That bothered me for years and years. I don't know why it took me so long to find out, but it's what they cry to him, Hosanna, uh, son of David, Hosanna. Uh, that word Hosanna means, means please save us. It's an Aramaic derivation of, of the Hebrew, which is very similar, Hosanna. Uh, please save us. It's a nationalist cry. It's a messianic cry, cry to Messiah to save us, but it's also a nas- it's become a nationalist cry, sort of like God bless America. So again, ticker tape parade, this is the guy, he's the conquering hero, he's going to give us peace and make us safe in all the ways that we think about, um, personally, politically, religiously. You know, we think that security, comfort, a nice buffer, I'm thinking this for myself, in the bank account, we've had some financial woes recently, all the kids being healthy, health myself, whatever it is. A good, getting into a good school, a, a good job, remove that terrible boss that I've got and bring me a better one. I mean, the list goes on and on. But we think about security, comfort, prosperity as our goals, as what we want God to do for us so often. But in this scene, Jesus, the Messiah, just rides right past all that to the cross. He rides right past all that fear all that acclaim, to go somewhere that looks like absolute defeat. 
He rides straight past all that to the cross. Okay? Not that that stuff isn't important. Not that that stuff isn't corollary. Not that not, he's not the good of all good the God of all good things. He is the, the God of all good gifts. Nothing good comes to us but from him. But those aren't our primary needs. Jesus goes straight to the hot core of what we need, not what we want. So finally, point three, not the king we're looking for. So we've looked at the seismic scene, Jerusalem, uh, just in an uproar, in a fury, just looking to acclaim Jesus Messiah, looking for him to throw off the yoke. And we've looked at the king we, we want, the king that we are looking for now, the king that we not the king that we're looking for. Jesus comes, listen to this, Jesus comes in apparent weakness, which is the ast- astonishing thing as we look a little more closely at this non-triumphal entry. It's not triumphal, it's, it's untriumphal, to coin a word. But he comes in actual, apparent weakness, but actual strength. So he rides in as Messiah, as I've said. He accepts the tribute. He rides in on a mount. You know, peasants and the poor, they would walk, and normal folk, they would walk most, most places. Might be on a camel in long distances, but to ride on a mount was a sign, especially in the way Jesus did, ties into some Old Testament scenes where actually kings of Israel, Jehu, for instance, I think it's 2 Kings 9, rode in as he was acclaimed king and, and, and crowned. He, they put him on a on donkey. So, and I believe Solomon also at one point rode in on a donkey as he was being um, crowned. So he accepts tribute, he rides on a mount, he rides into the city knowing full well it's Passover week. He doesn't silence any of these cries of Hosanna, son of David, save us. Um, the people are riding branches, they're throwing down their coats and saying, ride over. That's a symbol of someone kind of saying, like, your feet don't need to touch the ground. You're great, you're high, we're low, ride over our backs, we are here to serve you. Jesus doesn't silence anyone. On the contrary, if you look at this, all four Gospels have this Palm Sunday scene. They all include it. And if you look at Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, 19, starting in verse 37, Luke says this. He says, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, so heading toward the temple, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I mean, that is high, high praise. You're the king that's going to bring us peace and bring heaven to earth. But all the while, not, not seeing really anything that Jesus was going to go do. Um, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They knew that they were giving, these disciples were giving Jesus high, high praise. You are the one that God has sent to make all things right. And the teacher said, whoa, whoa, you can't be that guy. Like, you're from Galilee. You're a carpenter. You haven't had any formal training. No way. And so silence your disciples. They're speaking untruth. Jesus doesn't do that. What does he say? On the contrary, Luke 19, 40, he says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This has echoes of, what is, what is he saying? There are echoes here all over the place in the Old Testament, but Isaiah 55 for one, where we're told that when God comes and makes all things new, sends his Messiah to get rid of the pain and the sin and all the stuff that we've done inside and out to this world and to ourselves and to our fellow man, when he comes to make all things right, the creation is going to rejoice along with us. Everything is going to respond to its maker. Even the hills will be singing and the trees are going to be like clapping their hands. 
We think now that when they wave in the breeze, that's amazing, and it is, and they're praising God as they do so. But man, the new creation that this Messiah is going to bring is going to cry out to him, its creator. And Jesus is basically saying, no, they're not even going far enough. If they don't cry, the rocks will, the trees will, the hills will, the water will. He's basically claiming, he is claiming to be the Old Testament God. He is claiming to be the creator that all creation responds to, that all creation worships. Now, Jesus silences nobody, but he is himself strangely silent. Quote, unlike pilgrims who come on foot, Jesus rides to suggest his royalty, yes, but how quiet Jesus is on this ride. To suggest, excuse me, how quiet Jesus is on this ride. He does not say a word. All the speeches, if you notice, all the speeches are those of his entourage. So he's silent on this humble mount, on this donkey, on this ass. Spanish, burro. Every time you eat a burrito, you're eating a little donkey. Do you know that? He's on this beast of burden. Little fun fact. He's silent, strange, during this ticker tape parade. Strange. In fact, not only is he silent, but in Luke, again, Luke 19, in the next, very next verse after I stopped reading, Luke says this. And when he drew near and saw the city, so he's He's being surrounded by probably thousands and thousands of people just in an absolute uproar, and he's quiet. And he's mounted on this humble beast, on this burrito, on this, on this not even a burro, not even a donkey, but the foal of a donkey. And the donkey, Matthew says, was the mother was with her foal. Probably, Jesus wasn't, commentators get all crazy. Was he riding both of them? No. He, the, the mother was there to steady probably to steady her foal. The foal had never been ridden on before. The foal was so small, I mean, a foal of a donkey, that it probably had trouble even sustaining, I would imagine, Jesus. And he probably looked quite silly. He could have been every bit as big as this little foal. Kind of a silly scene. Not the scene of a victorious king riding in after he's just made conquest. Not at all. And he's silent. And actually, he drew near the city, Luke says in Luke 19, 41, and he what? He wept. As soon as it comes into view, he rounds the corner, mountains encircling Jerusalem, he sees Jerusalem down below in the temple, and he starts not just crying, he doesn't shed a tear, he starts weeping in Middle Eastern, ancient Middle Eastern fashion. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But he basically goes on to say, you've, you've missed it, even in the midst of this parade. You've missed me, and you're going to miss me so, so much they're going to end up nailing me to a cross in just a few days. Because he was not the king that they were looking for. They were looking for a king to get rid of, to take care of the things that pained them right then, right now. And he rode right past that, right past the Roman dominion, and went to the heart of hell itself. And so he weeps, knowing what's coming for those who reject him. Knowing that in a generation, in 70 AD, the city would be surrounded, and it would be destroyed, and all the people in it. In fact... If you read from Josephus and others about Titus' destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, it was so bad that they ran out of trees, they ran out of wood by which to crucify people in the city. Because again, the city was sieged 
during Passover and nobody could get out, so it was swollen. And it was a two-year siege. The Romans were so ticked by the time they got in there that they crucified everybody they could find. All the roads leading out from Jerusalem were crosses. Utter, utter, utter destruction. And Jesus weeps. During this moment, when any single king in history, any one of us, would have been, I mean, the, the spotlight is on Jesus. Here comes the conquering hero. All the, all the people are hanging out of the balconies. The, you know, the, the confetti's coming down and the spotlight is right on him. Anybody else would have been thinking about, number one, it's my hour. Even at this time, what is Jesus focusing on? Other. Jerusalem. He's weeping. He's weeping. He's accepting, yes, I am the coming Messiah, but I'm not the Messiah you think I am. I'm not the Messiah you want. I'm the Messiah that you need. He's thinking of these people. He's thinking of you. He's thinking of me. So he's high, but he's humble. He's not on a war horse, as I've said, but, and we might have a picture or two to show you. I mean, there's nothing like a picture to show you. The difference between a war horse and typically kings after their victory would come in on a horse. A, a steed, a, a horse gives every, every signal of being martial, military, of conquest. Man, when you come in on a, ho- on a good horse, on a good mount, into battle in those days, man, you had a high position and you were ready to strike. You had a serious advantage. But man, you come in on a burro, a burro, an, an ass, a donkey, man, with those big ears and it's got that sway back. And he's on a little, even a baby that's never been ridden before. That is silliness. That's humble. That is humble. And the difference between these two, you just look at the photos and it's so evident. He came in humble, as a humble king. The disciples seeing him on this, on this, on this donkey must have thought, really, Jesus? Like, the parade is fantastic, but couldn't you have done a little better? We could have, like, scrounged around for a horse or something. Um, it's kind of like riding a, like a Ford Fiesta into a parade, you know, where you're the centerpiece. And sorry if you've got a Ford Fiesta, nothing against them, but maybe don't take it to the next parade if you're the center of attention. Um, he's humble, but he's high. Um, you know, nobody, again, like I said, nobody had, had ridden on this beast before. Have you ever tried to ride on a, any sort of horse or equine that has never been broken, that has never felt a human on its back before? Not possible. Under Jesus, this humble mount is completely obedient because Jesus, he's appearing humble, but actually he made this. He made this little colt. He made this foal. And and in that little way that maybe nobody perceived at the time, we're reminded of the fact that this is the creator who's come down and is offering himself in utter humility for us. Not, not Not to walk over our backs and have us serve him, but rather to serve us. Not to ride in victory and to have us be his conquest, or even the Romans, but to be defeated himself. So there's a line that Matthew actually, he's quoting from any time, so a little, little Bible reading tip, any time that you read, and if you're reading Matthew, you'll read a lot, and all throughout the New Testament, the New Testament authors are constantly saying, okay, here's how you understand Jesus. Go back to the Old Testament. So what are they saying? They're saying, if you want to understand Messiah, you have to understand him in the context of how he fulfills the scriptures, everything that's been pointing to him all along for the past few thousand years, Jesus, God's word, the Old Testament the Hebrew Bible. And so Matthew does that. So anytime you see, like in verse 5, Matthew 21, 5, 
Matthew is saying, Zach, yeah, this bit of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ right now. Go back to that, go back to that bit if you're reading the, in, your, in your Bible and, and see what's around it and see if there are any changes. See if there are any, uh, a lot of times that was a, that was a Hebrew uh, teaching technique is, is they'll quote an Old Testament verse and then change it just a little bit or leave something out or maybe add something. And that, there's a lot there. That's like a highlighter. It's like a spotlight on the text. And so there's one line that Matthew leaves out if you go back to Zechariah 9.9. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, next line, humble and mounted on a donkey. So between your king is coming to you and humble and mounted on a donkey, we have this line that Matthew just elides, he just takes out. And that is the line, behold, your king is coming to you, triumphant and victorious is he. And Matthew, in taking that out, isn't saying Jesus wasn't triumphant and victorious, but he is saying, I think, among other things, not in the way that anybody thought he would be, not in the way that we expect that he will be, not in the way often we want him to be. But of course, he fulfills this line. Matthew's not saying he doesn't, but we miss it. He was indeed triumphant and victorious, but only at the cost, only at the cost of his own defeat, his utter, his utter defeat for us, going to be our Savior, going to the cross. Again, this is Dodds, Dodds Pangris preaching this at, right now at Heights, and we talked about this, this sermon this, this week as we had a conference in Dallas and had a lot of ride time. But Dodds' line, he rides, again, right past the Romans. He rides right past apparent victory and triumph. Could have easily, it would have been so easy for Jesus to crush all outward opposition. The hard thing, if I can say it with reverence for Jesus, the much greater thing was in humility, this humble God, to go to ride in on a donkey and go to the lowest place to be crucified on a Roman gibbet, on a form of execution, a cross, and to endure the wrath of God for you and for me. That's what it took for us to have victory, for us to triumph, whatever it is that we're going through. Jesus gave us not what we wanted, but what we needed. But what we needed. He laid low sin and its progeny, death and hell. He came and defeated an enemy so far greater than the Romans that nobody at the time, not even his disciples, could get their minds and hearts around it. He just sidestepped everybody, even Satan. At the cross, Satan was, I, I assure you, rejoicing. He was thinking, this is my moment of greatest victory, the Son of God. I know very well this is God's own Son. He has just been crucified. I win. And at that very moment, Jesus said what? It is finished. The work necessary to cut us from the chains of hell and death and to pay for all of our sin, to wipe us clean, and to give us the righteousness of Christ became ours the minute Jesus did that work. And the minute you believe on him, you will be saved. So what looked like a catastrophe was actually a choreographed victory. This untriumphal entry was actually the greatest triumph in the history of all things. And all of history converges around this point. Look, you may be in a place right now where you are mourning what feels like complete or partial catastrophe. And you feel like Jesus is just riding right past you. And he may be, but I assure you, friend, he is riding to the cross. That's how much he loves you. And he didn't stay there. He rose three days later. And therefore, through 
because of his defeat, which was actually victory, through suffering and death, if we've looked to him and been made alive in him, and we have victory over even suffering and death, and, and we, he does his greatest work because of what he's done on the cross, he's created a new economy. I call it the economy of the cross, where he works most powerfully, most victoriously, most triumphantly through his body as we suffer well and know that we are actually victors. Those, to take an extreme example, those poor Egyptian Christians today that were bombed, you know, blood splattered on the, on the pillars of some of these churches where Jesus is being worshipped as King and God. They, the body of Christ, are suffering. But as we watch, I'm sure things will happen that we don't know, but don't understand, but as we watch, we will probably see forgiveness. We will probably see God moving in power and saving people that wouldn't have otherwise been saved. We will see the power of the cross go out to create life through suffering and privation and loss and death. And that is how the power primarily of God goes out through his body and makes things new until he comes again. We are victorious because he laid his life down for us. Melito of Sardis in 180 AD. He said, And so he was raised on a cross and a title was fixed indicating who it was who was being executed. Painful as it is to say, he who suspended the earth is suspended. He who fixed the heavens is fixed. He who fastened all things is fastened to the wood. The master is outraged. God is murdered. This high, high, high king went low for us and turned the tables on everyone that were around him, on satanic powers, on the powers of darkness, and created victory out of defeat. And he passes that on to us so that whatever you're going through right now, if you're in Christ, you can take heart. You can know because of what Christ has done that you do have the victory. And actually that line, triumphant and victorious is he, uh, that's how it's interpreted some, but actually um, the, the Hebrew most accurately says righteous and having salvation is he. How did he do it? He did it by humbling himself so much that he came again in apparent weakness, not actually weak. It would have been easy for him to crush all opposition, but the harder thing was to come and to, and to be apparently so weak and low that what? He was able to be crucified. God put himself in a place on a little donkey. He put himself, I mean, how, how I, even though it's happened, it's hard to get your mind and heart around. But then I, could, I can't even imagine how, what a shock it must have been. He put himself, he went so low that he put himself in a place where he was able to be crucified by men. And through that crucifixion, he opened up a door through death to life. He took the punishment that we deserve, that we've piled up in our sins against God who made us. He became that curse. And in doing that, cleared the way for us to be reunited with our maker in love, in complete approval, in righteousness. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble, mounted on a donkey, even the foal of a donkey. What an amazing God we serve, high and yet humble. If you look at a little bit more closely at some of the language Matthew uses regarding this, even this donkey, 
He calls the donkey. He adds a line. So he took away a line, right? But if you look back at the text in Zechariah, again, that he took this from, he adds a line. He calls the donkey a beast of burden, which indeed it was. It was a peasant's animal for hard labor. Not glorious at all, not used in battle, typically, but a good working animal. He called, Matthew calls it a beast of burden. And I think one of the things he's doing is he's showing us, yes, this shows Jesus' humility, but it also shows us something else more profound, I think, or as profound. It shows us, again, Matthew calls it a beast of burden. He's reminding us of the, the curse in Genesis 3 where we were made to know God and to have dominion over all things and to love him and to love each other. And when we pulled away from God and decided to disobey him and do what we wanted, everything that was put under our charge cracked. All creation cracked. And in the heart of the curse in Genesis 3, God says to Adam, in verses 17 through 19, he says, he says, cursed will be your toil. You will, every, everything about work, which I've made to be good in this, in this world, God worked in making creation. He made us in his image to work. Work is a good thing, but creation makes it really painful, laborious, terrible at times, hard at the very least. And that's a huge, that's central to the curse. And I think that one of the things Matthew is telling us is that Jesus, in this humble way, that surprises everybody, is actually going to do something. He's going to absorb the curse within him on that cross, and he's going to, with his resurrection, which will be really trumpeting next Sunday, he's going to begin the process of undoing the curse. He pays for that curse on the cross, and with his resurrection, through largely the suffering and pain of his people, as they let Christ work through them in life, through their death, through their laying their lives down, through their loving other... You know, every time you love somebody, it's laying your life down, it's a death. Especially when the world says, you should insist on your rights and you decide not to because of what Jesus has done, because he's in you. His power is going out through you, and he is restoring all things through his church. He's undoing the curse. And when he returns in power on a war horse, he's going to finish it. He's going to make all things new. It's coming. It's not as good as it gets. And then... Uh, lastly, before just giving you a few application points, the, the branches. So that I told you that when they cut the branches off and they lay their coats down and they lay their branch, the branches down for Jesus to, to walk over them with his mount, I mean, it's very much pointing to revolt, but I think that more fundamentally, it's taking us back to the beginning. Those palm branches, I believe, in this context, are taking us back to Eden for paying attention. Eden was a place of, it was a lush garden. And it was essentially recreated in the, the tabernacle and the temple. So we, we left, we were pushed out of paradise because we sinned against God. And the, the earth became cursed and it became a hard place to work, full of toil and sadness, inside and out. That's what our sins did to the world. But when God made a people for himself through Israel... He said, there's going to be a place in the center of your life that's going to be a place where sacrifices are constantly made. An innocent thing will die so that you, the guilty, can live with me in peace. And that was the sacrificial system. It all happened at the tabernacle and the temple. And there's a bunch of symbolism in the temple. But in, in brief, the temple was to be a mini Eden, a recreation of what it was supposed to be like. And Jesus was going to come along one day, and he was going to actually be the temple and fulfill that and make us temples of the living God. And wherever we went, 
recreation, Edenic recreation also went. But back to the tabernacle and temple, if, you're not, if you read about this stuff and you don't have that paradigm, it's confusing, but all throughout the temple, the decorations, chapters and chapters in Exodus and Leviticus about the detail, the work on the temple, on the, on the robes of the priests who administer the sacrifices, palm branches, pomegranates, and bells were all along the, the robes and in different places on the priestly garments. You have, you have flowers of all sorts of different kinds, fruits, palm branches. And what is God saying? Again, he's saying, this is, I'm taking through my work, through the sacrifice that doesn't deserve to die, that will die in your place, so that you can be with me. I'm going to restore all things. And again, Jesus comes along and what he says in participating in this parade that we misunderstand, that the Jews misunderstood, but that he understood on a far deeper, deeper level. He's, he's not going to crush the Romans. He's going to begin by going to the cross and being resurrected three days later, the process of the renewal of all things, of taking us back to Eden and, in fact, beyond Eden, to a, to a place that is unable to countenance sin and evil, where sin and evil and pain and hurt inside and out they have no place because God is ruling there in person. And he's ruling now in our hearts by faith, and one day he's going to come back. The man Jesus will come back, victorious king, on a war horse, and he's going to make it all new. That's our hope. Um, and so uh, three quick ways that we can, that we can uh, apply this. So again, through his cross, Jesus has established a new economy that will lead to the renewal of all creation. And that really, that economy goes forth, that renewal goes forth as we die to what we feel like are our rights. George MacDonald, one of C.S. Lewis's mentors, calls them our rag rights. Lord, help me to let go of my rag rights, my perceived rights, the rights that the world tells me I have, um, to die to self, to live to, what, to you, God. Um, three application points. So how do we do this? In the home, man, in the home, for me, it's easy to think about. It's hard to do, but with the Spirit of Christ in me, working in this way, I can, you can. We're new creatures in Christ. Um, arguments, not that we have any, but if we did. Um, in arguments, simple, simple point, you don't have to win. The world says you do. Your flesh rises up in you and says you do. I have to establish this point, A, B, C, D, E, and F. Um, and no, you don't actually. In fact, lose. It's okay. You don't have to argue your point. You don't even have to be understood. God understands you. God was misunderstood. God rode on a donkey straight past the Romans to the cross. He's in you. He loves you. He's working as you die to that need to be right and love your spouse by laying down. You know what actually happens is a power is released. What's the, what's the thing that diffuses arguments better than anything else? The thing that's hardest to say, truly. Not lip service, but I'm sorry. I'm, I was wrong. Whew. Nothing is more powerful. If you're not married yet, I'm telling you, Put that one in the bank and just cash in all the time with it. Because, man, it's hard to get to that place, but Jesus can if we cry out to him. And to say to your spouse, even if you know you're right, and most of us do, um, you know what? I was sinful in the way I did this, and I don't have to win. You don't say that part. I was wrong. Lay your life down and say you're sorry. And there's a power that will go out through that death, through that surrender, as you stop insisting on your perceived rights. It, it changes relationships. It can bring restoration. Okay, that's, a, that's the home. It, it work. You don't have to self-promote. 
It's a rat race out there, and everybody's trying to prove themselves. You don't have to prove your worth because it's already been proven. Here's how much you're worth. Here's how much you're loved. Jesus on the cross died for you, had your name on his heart. You're worth it. You're saved. You're free. There's nothing that you owe God now. He smiles on you. You're his child no matter what you're going through, no matter what sort of sin is in you, no matter how many times you've fallen. He's done it. He's completed the work. Okay, that's my identity. So I don't have to prove myself at work. So I can just be honest, and I can do really good work for God, not for men, and I can serve. I can make it my ambition to serve people and promote them. What, what if we did that at work? How, first of all, you're going to stand out eventually. Don't do it for that reason, but I promise you are. The excellence of your work is going to become known, your honesty. And actually, servant leadership, serving other people instead of, instead of promoting self, has been documented like forensically by guys like Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great. The best 11 companies in his research on the NASDAQ and on the, on the stock market that are charted by the stock market, the best publicly traded companies, the 11 best that met his sort of criteria, um, all had servant leadership at the top and, and just woven throughout the culture of the entire company. It works. It's powerful. It's powerful. Um, neighbors, lastly. So home, work, and then neighbors. We don't need to have our lives or our house perfect or seemingly perfect. We, we can invite our neighbors into the mess of everyday living and, and be secure enough, again, to say, just come and be with us. We invite you into our hearts, into our homes. We want to serve you. And that sort of lack of pretense and letting down our hair and just letting them into our lives is refreshing and, and can really lead to all sorts of wonderful breakthrough. Um, just to love our neighbors, to make that our, our ambition, rather than sort of putting up a, a facade, which Robin and I are often tempted to do because our house is always a disaster. But Robin's actually getting in order, fighting shape. Uh, she's doing a great job. But so those are just three quick areas that we can, in practical ways, lay our lives down and let the power of Christ flow through us, this king that we weren't looking for, but that came looking for us. Last thing, uh, Fleming Rutledge, she begins her 600-page treatment of of the cross, of the crucifixion, thus titled, with three words. Christianity is unique. She goes on. The world's religions have certain traits in common, but until the gospel of Jesus Christ burst upon the Mediterranean world, no one in the history of human imagination had conceived of such a thing as the worship of a crucified man. He's not the king that you're looking for, but he is the king that you have been looking for, even if you didn't know it all of your life. And he is certainly the king that you were made for because he made you for himself. I just want to entreat you, friend, don't miss him.